0: Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast.
1: Hello, you spectacular people! Welcome to this 121st episode of the History Goes Bump podcast.
0: Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's
1: episode, we have another asylum, Athens Lunatic Asylum. This one is in Athens, Ohio. We've become pretty familiar with these asylums, Denise, but what makes each of them unique are the people that were kept inside and, of course, the hauntings that go with it. And this place does seem to be quite haunted. And it became famous because of the lobotomies that were performed there. This is one place where a lot of those took place. Before we get into that, please check out our website, HistoryGoesBump.com. Denise, if people would like to send us some feedback via email, where can they do that?
0: They can do that at HistoryGoesBump at gmail.com.
1: I had the honor of writing the current The Lift podcast episode. This one is episode 13, of course, Denise. Yay, my lucky number. Titled Restitution, and it will be up the same day as this podcast on April 29th of 2016. If you're not listening to The Lift, you should be, and make sure you definitely listen to this episode. And we also have started something else exciting. That was a suggestion by a couple of our listeners, Rhonda... And Yencia had suggested that maybe we start a History Goes Bump book club. So we have chosen our first book. So for the month of May, if you would like to participate, I chose this one. And actually, it was a book that I just picked up for pleasure before I knew we were going to start this book club. And another listener said, hey, why don't we make that the one? So The Secret Rooms. It's a true story of a haunted castle, a plotting duchess and a family secret. And it's by Catherine Bailey. And then what we are going to do is after the month of May, so in the month of June, over on the forum, we have a thread that we've started about the book, and we will be doing our little virtual book club there. So if you haven't joined the forum, please do that. You can find it by going to our website, historyghostbump.com. And at the top, there's a bunch of tabs. There's an HGB Forum tab. You just click on that. It'll take you over. You register. It's completely free, very painless. And then we will have our virtual book club over there. And I've never been in a book club, Denise. So if people have suggestions on how we run that or if some people would like to take over and lead that, we'd be more than willing to let you have at that as well.
0: So That's true because I've never been in a book club either, but I have to giggle because Diane is not really the reader of the house. And so it's it's kind of funny to see her being in a book club and going, well, let's go to bed a little early so I can read.
1: <laughs> I know. I am horrible about starting books and not finishing them. So I'll have like 10 books going and none of them are done. So I think by committing to this, I will actually get it done. And Bob was giving me grief about already starting since it's not may yet, but I need a head start in order to get it done.
0: And we had a message from Pui Lee. Hey ladies, thank you for your recommendations on St. Augustine. We did everything you mentioned and it was great. Harry's food was amazing. The place itself is very cool. When we were getting a tour of the old jail, he showed us the solitary confinement cell and I felt very uneasy there. This sounds very odd, but there's something in that cell that really frightened me. I didn't get that feeling anywhere else in the old jail. The lighthouse was great, and the hike wasn't too bad. Smile emoticon. I hope you ladies had a great time last weekend.
1: And we absolutely did. We had Julie and Eric and Kathleen and Carla all join us along with mom and dad at the St. Augustine Lighthouse. We had a lot of fun. We didn't have any experiences. But there were a couple of other groups that did get locked into the lighthouse. And on one occasion, the tour guide finally got tired of having to go over there and unlock the door. So he had stuck the deadbolt so that it would stick out so the door couldn't close all the way. And the deadbolt was holding it open. And lo and behold, another group got locked in and I went over to the Spooktacular crew and I'll put this out to the listeners too. This is the stuff that just blows my mind and gets those gears running. How does something that doesn't have a body, doesn't have physical form, manage to push that deadbolt in, pull the door closed, and then get the deadbolt to come back out? Somehow it is making the pins in that lock move. How is it doing that without a physical key, without a physical body? It throws its ghostly chi. (laughs) Okay, great, Denise. That's a great (laughs) theory. Thank you. So we had a lot of fun. We're looking forward to our next meetup, which is probably going to be in St. Charles.
0: Yes, it will be the St. Charles and the, the Haunted America Conference. So that will be in June. We'll get
1: more details out about that.
0: And we do need to say this was the largest meetup we've had to date. So... That's a challenge for any listener. So when we get ready, we're going to be doing a lot of meetups over the next six months. So get ready to break our record. Jenny Watt commented over The Spectacular Crew. And this was in regards to, remember, our truck
1: driver, Amber, down in Australia, Denise, who's seen Min Min? Yes. I just listened to the Folly Beach episode, and I was so excited to hear that there is a fan from the Pilbara in Australia because that is where I live. I grew up hearing about the lights, and when I drive at night between the two towns I work in, I normally listen to an episode. Look out for kangaroos and min-min. I don't know which would scare me more. Astrid Lee sent us an email, and this was listening to our last episode about the Dumas brothel. I read once the Chinese prostitutes had it the worst and literally laid in small beds, those cribs, They had to lay there all day and by day's end were lying in a pool of, and let me just say the leftovers after a full day of being around men. I think everybody can figure that out. Tadpoles? Yeah. They were used up and or dead by their late 20s. Years ago, I took an interesting tour of a bordello about the time it was being converted into a gambling town and the women were only allowed out to shop on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons when the respectable women would stay at home so as not to see them. There was also a cubicle that was clear glass about waist length up with a light fixture where naked girls would stand for men to look at them and pick one. Historic Denver also had a get-together at a place downtown, I can't remember the name, that had been a bordello and there was a sad story of a woman killing herself after word of her family had been brought to her not a life any of us would have chosen and that is absolutely true
0: yeah it's, it makes me so sad how a lot of people were treated
1: well you know we discussed the anti-chinese sentiment just in general and so yes of course the chinese prostitutes would definitely have it the worst but i can't imagine any of those women who would have been working down in the basement just uh
0: and then shelby shared on the spooky crew I just got to finish the rest of the podcast on my way home from work. Those poor Dobermans. My gang says, let us at them. That has to be some seriously evil stuff to cause a breed known for its bravery and loyalty to be willing to die trying to escape. In flight or fight mode, Dobermans are high up on the fight side. Makes me wonder if something pushed the dog out the window. Thanks for the shout out, ladies. You both rock. And your crew knows how much research and heart you put into your podcast. Haters gonna hate. The people who come to mind don't matter, and the people who matter don't mind. So your crappy reviewers can pound sand. I agree with you on dirty miners. Ha ha. I have no qualms with what another woman or man voluntarily does with their own body, but I gag at the thought of unwashed, smelly, bad teeth and coal dust dirty hair and think I'd work in the stable shoveling poop first before enduring that. Mike Rowe would have had a field day with that dirty job. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. I'd be right there in the stables with you for sure.
0: We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Molly. Hey, Molly. Donna. Hi, Donna. Amber. Hey, Amber. Teresa. Hi, Teresa. Elizabeth. Hey, Elizabeth. Langley. Hey, Langley. Katie. Hey, Katie. And Lisa. Hi,
1: Lisa. All right, Denise, grab your straight jacket. We're going back
0: to the asylum. I think this is beginning to be a ploy. You just want me to get used to asylums so that you can lock me up.
1: Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity.
0: Today's moment in oddity is brought to us by Bob Sherfield. Born in February 1748, Jeremy Betham was an English philosopher and social reformer who is regarded as the founder of modern utilitarianism. A child prodigy, Betham went to Queen's College, Oxford, in 1760, aged 12, completing his bachelor's degree in 1763 and his master's in 1766, aged only 18. Though called to the bar in 1769, Betham never practiced due to his deep frustration with the complexity of the English legal code. It was these concerns for legal reform that led Betham to design a prison building he called the Panopticon. Though never built, the concepts he came up with influenced the design of many of the early American prisons, such as Eastern State Penitentiary. His philosophy was centered on the principle that, quote, it is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong, end quote. He was a leader in the field of Anglo-American philosophy of law, and he promoted the politically radical ideas of welfareism, individual and economic freedom, the separation of church and state, freedom of expression, equal rights for women, the right to divorce, and the decriminalization of homosexual acts. Ideas that for the 18th century were highly controversial, some of which are only now being accepted and implemented. Betham's radical way of looking at things didn't end when he died in 1832. He left instructions in his will that his body be dissected in front of an invited group of friends and displayed as an auto icon. The head and skeleton were preserved and placed in a wooden cabinet called an auto-icon with the skeleton dressed in Betham's clothing and padded out with straw. In 1850, it was moved to the University College London, an institution that he had ties to and placed in the south cloister of the college where it's displayed to this day. Unfortunately, the mummification process employed on the head was not a success, leaving it dried and darkened with skin stretched hot over the skull. This led to the auto Icon being given a wax head fitted with some of his actual hair. For many years the skull was kept in a box within the cabinet and then on a plinth nearby. But after repeated student pranks that involved stealing it and holding it for ransom to get charitable donations and smuggling it to a railway station in Scotland, it is now kept safely locked away. The final straw had been a prank that involved students using the skull to play soccer. As to why Betham wanted to be displayed this way after death, no one is sure. It may have been from a sense of self importance, or perhaps as a way of questioning religious sensibilities about life and death. Either way, it certainly is odd. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs>
1: This Day in History This Day in History is by Jessica Bell. On this day, April 29th in 1429, Joan of Arc arrives at the Siege of Orleans. Joan of Arc, nicknamed the Maid of Orleans, was born in 1412 in France. The daughter of a tenant farmer, she was not taught to read or write, but her mother instilled in her a deep love for the Catholic Church and its teachings. At the age of 13, Joan began to hear voices, which she determined had been sent by God to give her a mission of overwhelming importance, which was to save France by expelling its enemies and to install Charles as its rightful king. She took a vow of chastity and stopped her father from trying to force her into an arranged marriage. In 1428, Joan made her way to a stronghold of those loyal to Charles. Initially rejected by the local magistrate, she attracted a small band of followers who believed her claims to be the virgin who, according to a popular prophecy, was destined to save France. When the magistrate relented, Joan cropped her hair and dressed in men's clothes to make the 11-day journey across the enemy territory to the site of the crown prince's palace. Joan promised Charles she would see to the expelling of the English and would have him installed as the rightful king. Joan asked for an army to lead to Orleans, which was under siege from the English. Against the advice of his advisors, Charles granted a request, and Joan set off for Orleans in March of 1429 dressed in white armor and riding a white horse. By June, the French defeated the English, and in July, with Joan at his side, Charles VII was crowned the King of France, but sadly he was not fully convinced of her divine inspiration. In 1430, Joan was captured and ransomed to the English, who planned on using her as a propaganda prize. Due to concerns from his advisors that Joan was becoming too powerful, Charles VII distanced himself from Joan and made no attempt to have her released. In the trial that followed, Joan was ordered to answer to some 70 charges against her, including witchcraft, heresy, and dressing like a man. In May 1431, after a year in captivity and under threat of death, Joan relented and signed a confession, denying that she had ever received divine guidance. On the morning of May 30th, at the age of 19, Joan was burned at the stake. Her fame increased after her death, and 20 years later, a new trial ordered by Charles VII cleared her name. Long before Pope Benedict XV canonized her in 1920, Joan of Arc had attained mythic stature inspiring numerous works of art and literature over the centuries, and becoming the patron saint of France. You're listening to History Goes Bump.
0: An Athens lunatic asylum is suggested by listener Tracy Martin, and our research assistant was Jenny Watt. The Athens Lunatic Asylum is an institution that operated in Athens, Ohio from 1874 until 1993. This hospital not only has a strange and morbid history, but it has gone through a series of name changes. Today it is known as the Ridges, a name it took on in the 1990s. While it was operational, the hospital served thousands, including Civil War vets, children, and violent convicted criminals. The Ridges are now part of Ohio University and house the Kennedy Museum of Art and Auditorium, offices, classrooms, and storage facilities. The facility also houses something else. Spirits of those that died here have decided to remain. There are legends, tales of seances, and unwashable stains that are all part of the paranormal happenings at this location. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Athens Lunatic Asylum.
1: Mound builders were the original residents of Athens, Ohio. Both the Adena culture and Ohio Hopewell called this area home. And Ohio is definitely known for these mounds. They have lots of them there, a lot of these more intricate ones, I believe. Didn't we talk about in our, I think it was our first show, the snake mound or something? I know that they've come up
0: quite a bit.
1: The Shawnee moved in much later and were the primary tribe here by the 18th century. It would not be until 1797 that the first Europeans would arrive. Athens County was established in 1805 and named for Athens, Greece. The town of Athens would incorporate in 1811, but it wouldn't become an official city until 1912. And what made it an official city is that Ohio had certain rules about population, and I think you had to have at least 1,000 people in your population before you could be considered a city. The Hawking River passed through Athens, and the Hawking Canal opened in 1843 to enable shipping. The railroad arrived in 1857, bringing more people and commerce.
0: The Athens Lunatic Asylum was built on farmland owned by Arthur Coates and Illicum H. Moore Farms on high ground south of town. The property included over 1,000 acres. For many years, the hospital had livestock, farm fields and gardens, an orchard, greenhouses, a dairy, a physical plant to generate steam heat, and even a carriage shop. The architect for the original building was Levi T. Schofield of Cleveland. The designs of the buildings and the grounds were influenced by Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride, a 19th century physician who authored an influential treatise on hospital design called On the Construction, Organization, and General Arrangements of Hospitals for the Insane. That's quite the title. We've discussed Kirkbride buildings in past asylum episodes, and these designs are most recognizably characterized by their bat-wing floor plans and often lavish victorian-era architecture the main building included an administration building and two wings that included three sections the males were housed on the left wards and females in the right they each had their own specific dining halls there was room to house 572 patients in the main building which was almost double of what kirkbride had recommended The building itself was 853 feet long and 60 feet in width. And also built into the main building in the back were a laundry room and a boiler house. The main building was built from bricks which were fired on site from clay dug on site.
1: The institution provided its own utilities with electricity coming from plants on the property powered by steam turbo generators and water came from wells there. Heat was provided by coal-fired boilers. Seven cottages were constructed to house more patients that were grouped together dormitory style. The hospital grounds were designed by Herman Herrlin of Cincinnati, who also designed the grounds for Ohio University. There were ponds, fountains, and gardens, which the doctors believed would help patients recover from their mental afflictions. Eventually, there would be 78 buildings built on the property, and care would go from good to horrible, as overcrowding and new forms of treatment were used to experiment on patients.
0: Isn't it funny that it seems like a lot of these asylums went from good or decent to just the most horrid places ever?
1: Well, this is the case when you look at jails or asylums, hospitals. If you get too many people and not enough staff, especially knowledgeable staff, as we're going to find out, the care is just going to go down normally just because people are overworked and you just don't have enough. It's why you want to have fewer kids in a classroom with a teacher and stuff. And then, of course, they get these brilliant ideas about these new forms of treatment that we've discussed in other episodes that occurred here as well, and we'll discuss those in a moment.
0: For some reason, they
1: thought these were a good thing,
0: you know? Yeah. Uh. The asylum started with 200 patients. The first patient in Athens was believed to have been Thomas Armstrong from Belmont County, and then there was Daniel Fremau. Fremau apparently thought he was the second coming of Jesus Christ. Reasons why people were considered insane varied and there were weird theories on why people became mentally ill. Many of these are quite laughable to us today and include intemperance, which is a lack of restraint, dissipation, which is wasteful spending and activities, and of course, masturbation for men and postpartum depression, menopause, and menstrual derangements for women.
1: (laughs) 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 You gotta love it. So we're both going through menopause right now, so I guess we're just nuts. (laughs) Now, I know a lot of women can get kind of nuts when it's, you know, that time of the month and stuff. And you just got to laugh about the uh, masturbation thing. How many parents told their boys that, you know, (laughs) when they're in the bathroom locked in there with a magazine?
0: Are we going to have to send you to the asylum? (laughs)
1: You're going to make yourself crazy in there.
0: (laughs) Okay, so anyway, we digress. Moving on. No joke, in 1876, 81 men and one woman were diagnosed as having their insanity caused by masturbation. Also, 56 men and one woman were diagnosed as having their insanity caused by intemperance and dissipation. During the same period of time, 51 women were diagnosed with something similar to postpartum depression, 32 women with menopause or change of life issues, and 29 women with menstrual derangements. I still want to know what a menstrual derangement is. PMS? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs)
1: Boy, this gave people some good excuses to get rid of their uh, marital partners, for sure. I just can't imagine, you know, oh, I'm getting hot flashes. Let's go lock her up in the asylum. (laughs) There's something wrong with her. Of course, there was also epilepsy, and this was considered a major cause of insanity and was another reason for admission to the hospital in the early years historically this was not uncommon a lot of people who suffered from epilepsy were either considered cursed by witchcraft possessed by the devil or insane and i believe we discussed that with our salem witch trials Mm -hmm. episode how so many people could have just been epilepsy and they thought they were having these convulsions because they were possessed by the devil the first annual report lists 31 men and 19 women is having their insanity caused by epilepsy. It's interesting how they're using the terminology insanity. Of course, we generally say mentally ill now because it just sounds, when you say that somebody is insane, we have a different vision of what insanity is. You know, yeah. I'm thinking about that guy who goes into the post office and shoots up a bunch of people or something like that. You know, this is insane. Or like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, this person is absolutely insane. Or if you guys are watching Gotham, Penguin has lost it again.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> he has- it's insane. Okay, no, no, uh, no. What are those called? Spoilers? Yeah, no spoilers. But yeah, penguin has gone to that insanity word for sure.
1: But how in the world epilepsy is considered causing insanity? Because when a person is not having an epileptic seizure, what are they doing that would make them seem insane? They're probably perfectly normal when they're not having a seizure. So it just, and, and you're locking them in here. There's criminally insane people in here. There's people who have some real issues. And that's a lot of people
0: to be put in there for that reason. Well, and it's really sad that we did treat people, well, not only the the truly mentally ill that we treated them the way that we did in the past, but people who ha- did not have mental illness got thrown into the same thing for all these like, I mean, we're kind of laughing about it, but it's really actually sad that they were all thrown in there.
1: Well, and it wasn't just epilepsy, just general ill health accounted for the admission of 39 men and 44 women in the first three years of the hospital's operation. And there is no definition for what that ill health is. So what exactly do you mean by general ill health? Now, eventually, this is going to become a place where tuberculosis is treated, but not originally Overall, common ailments faced today, such as epilepsy, menopause, alcohol addiction, and tuberculosis, were cause for enrollment in the hospital.
0: Within two years of its opening, the hospital was renamed the Athens Hospital for the Insane. Through the following years, the hospital would be called the Athens Asylum for the Insane, the Athens State Hospital, the Southeastern Ohio Mental Mental Health Center, the Athens Mental Health Center, the Athens Mental Health and Mental Retardation Center, the Athens Mental Health and Developmental Center, and then again, the Athens Mental Health Center. That's a tongue twister. Obviously, they weren't very decisive when it came to naming the place. Treatments at the hospital were considered cutting edge at the time, but we see them as barbaric in our current era. One such treatment was hydrotherapy, in which patients were submerged in ice-cold water for extended periods of time, or sometimes they were wrapped in sheets which had been soaked in ice water and restrained. Another treatment was electroshock therapy, which was administered to patients in one of two ways. The first was to submerge the patient in a water tank and then apply electrical current through the water. The other was to place brine-soaked electrodes directly to the temples. A patient held a rubber piece in his mouth to prevent him from biting his tongue off during the convulsions which followed a treatment.
1: And then there was the infamous lobotomy for which Athens was famous. There were two types of lobotomies performed, the original and the transorbital. An original lobotomy required a patient to have their skulls opened and their neural passages separated midway through the brain. This difficult and arduous procedure killed many people. Obviously, you're opening up their heads and slicing their brain. But those who survived did in fact forget many of their depressive or psychotic tendencies. They also forgot a lot of other things, like how to maintain proper bodily functions. It was not uncommon for patients to defecate down their legs. Doctors were more concerned with streamlining the process than actually providing true treatment. We've discussed the transorbital lobotomy before, but as a refresher, it was developed by Dr. Walter J. Freeman in the early 1950s. It was a simpler process and thus became something of a craze in mental health circles up through the 1960s. Dr. Freeman's method involved knocking the patient unconscious with electric shocks, then rolling an eyelid back and inserting a thin metal ice pick-like instrument called a leucotome through a tear duct. A mallet was used to tap the instrument the proper depth into the brain. Next, it was sawed back and forth to sever the neural receptors. Sometimes this was done in both eyes. There is some evidence that this method actually helps some people with very severe conditions, but much more often the patient had horrible side effects and in many cases ended up nearly catatonic. It also killed a whole bunch of people. And in the show notes, we have a little diagram there from Down Brothers and Meyer and Phelps Limited, the leucotomy instruments, and it shows you exactly what this thing looks like. And Denise, I can't imagine having that pushed up through my nose or in my eye to saw my brain. That's just... I don't know. It looks like a torture implement.
0: What they did was actually what we would consider torture in today's standards. For many years, the hospital was the biggest employer in the surrounding area, although a large percentage of the work it took to maintain the facility was carried out by the patients. Doctors and physicians believed that this was not only therapeutic for patients, but it was also free to the hospital itself. By the end of the 1950s, most treatment incorporated drugs, which left patients unable to carry out their duties. Most of the non-patient employees at the asylum were not even trained and had little experience working with people who had mental illness. Most were employed because they were burly men who could physically control the patients. Also starting in the 1950s, the asylum became a place where people would leave unwanted relatives, claiming that they couldn't take care of them or they couldn't afford to have them around. These discarded people included the elderly, the homeless, and rebellious teenagers. The situation got so bad that soon the asylum's population was at three times the recommended amount, with 2,000 people being housed here.
1: One of the more famous patients at the asylum was multiple personality rapist Billy Milligan. He was sent to Athens by a Franklin County judge in 1977 for treatment after his insanity plea was accepted by prosecutors. His case was the first time an insanity plea was accepted in American history. Milligan's crimes included the kidnap and rape of three women on the campus at Ohio State University. Milligan reportedly had suffered from multiple personality disorder since early childhood. His story was told in the book The Minds of Billy Milligan by Daniel Keyes, who was also the author of Flowers for Algernon. I actually had to read that book, I think, in middle school.
0: Flowers for Algernon is a great book.
1: And the Columbus Dispatch had an article dated back in October of 2007 claimed that this Billy Milligan had at least 24 personalities. One of the women told an investigator that the rapist had a German accent, although Milligan was born in Florida and was raised in Circleville and Lancaster.
0: You know, it's interesting back in kind of that time period, s- multiple personalities was kind of a rave at the time because that's about the same time when Sybil came out, too. Remember the book?
1: It is. You know, you don't really hear about people talking about multiple personality anymore. But there was a time where that was like, like you said, it was almost a craze, kind of like the satanic panic craze. Mm-hmm. Then there was this multiple personality. They kind of went hand in hand with each other because yes. a lot of the satanic ritual abuse went with that. But apparently his personalities were so convincing that even some of the doctors who were skeptical said they could see that there was a difference between these different people.
0: Many people died at the asylum, and they were buried in a cemetery on the property. There are 1,930 people buried at the three cemeteries located on the site. 700 women and 959 men lay under headstones marked only with numbers. In 1943, the state of Ohio began putting names, births, and deaths on the markers of the patients who had died instead of numbers, and no one knows why the switch was made. By the 1980s, the state no longer took care of the cemeteries, which made it easy for outsiders to vandalize them. And nature brought damage as well, with headstones being uprooted and broken. The stones marking where patients were buried were in desperate need of repair. Beginning in 2000, the Athens, Ohio chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, started the reclamation for the cemeteries, taking on the work that was once the responsibility of the Ohio Department of Mental Health. NAMI worked to help restore the cemeteries at the asylum to their original states. The state of Ohio had always allowed families to erect private markers at the graves of their loved ones, but very few families were made aware that they could do this, so few were personally marked in any way. Since the takeover, more information has been
1: discovered about the patients that are buried in the three cemeteries. Much of the recovered information is about the veterans that had spent the remaining days of their lives at the asylum. Many of these veterans did not receive honors and only 19 have had any recognition. There are 80 veterans that are buried at the Ridges, and that's the new name for the asylum. To find these lost veterans, a special search was added to the broader research project that had been organized to uncover background information on the over 1,900 patients buried in the asylum's three cemeteries. Of these veterans, two fought in the Mexican War, 68 fought in the Civil War, one was a member in the Confederate Army, and another, two veterans served with the United States Colored Infantry. There are three veterans who served in the Spanish-American War and seven who fought in World War I. Some of the other veterans that are buried here were active duty in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. That's a lot of people to be buried on that property. What I find fascinating is that you have almost 2,000 people buried here, which means that their families didn't claim their bodies because I would think most of them would want their bodies taken with them somewhere to be put near a
0: family plot or something. But a lot of the families were the ones who stuck them away in there to forget about them too. Exactly. It just, I don't know, it blows my mind. NAMI implemented other practices to honor the dead buried at the cemeteries at the Ridges. Besides helping replace gravestones and keeping the grounds in proper condition, starting in 2005, the Ridges Cemeteries Committee has been organizing Memorial Day ceremonies for the many veterans buried at the asylum. Prior to 2005, the veterans had never received such honors. NAMI started Memorial Day ceremonies to help restore dignity to the patients and recognize the sacrifice of the veterans many who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as other post-war symptoms. With the help of the Athens County Veterans Service Office and a special appropriation from the Athens County Commissioners, flag stands and flags have been placed at the graves of all the veterans in the three cemeteries. In
1: 1972, the last patients were buried in the asylum cemetery, and by 1981, there were only 300 patients at the location. The hospital was eventually decommissioned and in a land swap between the Department of Mental Health and Ohio University, the hospital's property was deeded to Ohio University. Appalachian Behavioral Health Athens Campus, as Southeast Psychiatric Hospital was renamed, still serves as a psychiatric hospital in Athens. With the original Athens Lunatic Asylum situated on a hill south of the Hawking River and the newer hospital on the north bank of the river, the two facilities are still within sight of each other. A naming contest was held in 1991 and the name The Ridges won. The asylum officially closed in 1993. The buildings were remodeled and the main hall is known as Lynn Hall and houses the music, geology, and biotechnology offices as well as the Kennedy Museum of Art. Most of the buildings have been remodeled and are used by the university. There are walking tours of the ridges on the third Sunday of every month with extra hours added in October. And these are just standard history tours. These are not ghost tours. They don't allow any kind of ghost hunting, any kind of investigation, or ghost tours. Anything of that nature is not allowed there. So obviously it makes it a little harder for us to get information on haunting activity there,
0: but we will present to you what we did find. Reasons abound for asylums to be breeding grounds for paranormal activity. An Athens lunatic asylum is no different. Restoring and introducing a new use for a location only seems to feed spectral activity. The asylum is one of the most haunted locations in Ohio, if not in America. Now, this one, I might actually believe on that one, Diane. We usually make fun of that most haunted.
1: Of course, I wonder how they know that because nobody's able to actually go in there and do any of these investigations. So oh, that's it's like, true. how do they
0: know? Oh, that's true. Good point. There are many weird ghostly stories centered around the cemeteries particularly on the strange circle of graves that is taking up the corner of a tombstone layout. Perhaps there was a center stone in other times, but all that is distinguishable today is a ring of graves. The local legends claim that witches made use of this circle for holding seances. The official Ohio University explanation is that the circle was created by some pranksters several years ago, and this might be the most reasonable explanation, although it is less fun. The place is reportedly visited by ghosts, especially at night. There's a little creek and woods that are part of the cemetery, and people have reported seeing strange lights and hearing screams in the cemetery at night.
1: On December 1st, 1979, a patient by the name of Margaret Schilling went missing. The hospital staff made a half-hearted attempt to find her, but Margaret was nowhere to be found. Her body would be found 42 days later. She had been locked into one of the abandoned infectious disease wards. Testing was done on the body to determine why she died. The conclusion was heart failure, but she'd been found in a weird state. She was found completely naked with her clothes neatly folded and placed next to her body. Worse yet was the fact that because she'd been there for so long, her body had started to decay, and the gooey bodily fluids leached onto the floor and left an imprint of her body. Much to everyone's dismay, the stain couldn't be scrubbed out no matter how hard they tried, And to this day, the lonely outline of her body can still be seen on the top floor of the asylum. Some say that on clear nights, Margaret can still be seen trying to escape the room where she died. People report seeing her through the windows of the top floor of Ward N-20. And on some experiences that I had read, that when they went to get Margaret's body and put it on a gurney, they had rolled her body over, so it's almost like there's a double imprint. There's one that's darker but there's a lighter one next to it as well. And again, these stains always blow our minds. When we had our other show that we used to do, The Twilight Hour, we interviewed that woman who had written that book. Was it called Blood? Blood Stains? What was it called? Oh, gosh. Darn it.
0: I don't remember.
1: I can't remember it either, but it was basically this woman had been killed by her husband at the bottom of the stairs, and I think she had like um, shoes that she had on Somehow they imprinted into the floor. So these footprints that have blood appear in the wood on the floor there and nothing makes them go away. Just one of those paranormal things that's always amazed me. And again, there's plenty of pictures out there. If you Google it, you will see. And indeed, it looks like there's an outline of her body there.
0: Yeah, it's well, and even when we were up in St. Augustine at the lighthouse, now it wasn't blood, but muddy footprints appear in the lighthouse and in the keeper's house and they'll appear and then they can't get them off no matter what, then they'll go away for a little while. It is very bizarre. Not many investigators have had a chance to explore the buildings. There are no overnights allowed, as we've already said, and trespassing became so bad that the abandoned tuberculosis ward has finally been torn down
1: which was much to the dismay of the historical society who was fighting to keep it up. There was petitions that people signed, but it was not enough. And so a historical building was torn down because obviously too many teenagers were trespassing and getting arrested and it was becoming a danger. So that was Mm. the way they solved it. My issue here is, look, let's be capitalists. How much money could you make by making sure that that tuberculosis ward is a safe building for people to be inside of and hosting? Ghost hunts and ghost tours and investigations, you could make enough money doing that for the upkeep of that building. And you would keep the historical building in place. I have no idea why you would not go down that route. I don't know either. Seems like a money making deal to me. From what I'd heard about the building is that it had some outside issues that needed to be taken care of, but it was mostly cosmetic that the interior that it was
0: a a strong structure that, you know, it wasn't like falling apart. That's so sad. Yeah, I hate that. P.J. Roberts posted this at the Haunted Athens, Ohio website. Quote, was in Athens in 1999 with husband checking out campus, college for oldest son, and stopped to eat at a restaurant down below front of building. As we left to go to car, we decided to walk closer to building, so strolled around it. As we approached, we thought we saw a disheveled middle-aged woman in a window on the second floor looking out at us. Did not find out until much later what the building was and its history had a refill to it. End quote.
1: People report hearing disembodied voices, feelings of being watched, an oppressive feeling in the chest making breathing difficult, and the very chilling disembodied screams of those receiving treatment so many years ago. One nurse who had worked in the electroshock therapy ward claimed that it got to a point where she was never sure if the screams were coming from an actual patient being treated or some kind of paranormal experience. EVPs have been recorded, and we have an example of one that I heard while watching a video of some urban explorers on the property. There was something that made it move.
0: Was it ghosts? Who knows? (laughs) These windows, the last time we were here, were not boarded up. They were broken windows. that, And we stick our hands through them.
1: It's happened to us, and then we... And what's interesting about that soundbite, Denise, is that in the video, they think they pick up a voice later on in the video telling them to go. But they make no mention of this female voice that's at the beginning there. And it was two guys. They had no woman with them. So where that voice came from, I do not know. I wish we had more of the personal stories because obviously this was a nurse who was working there when it was open. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that you could get some of these haunting experiences from because obviously they would have been going on. This place was open for decades. So some of the people who were actually there would have had paranormal experiences all along, but they don't have any stories out there about what they experienced, unfortunately, really.
0: What would cause a stain to permanently stay within the fibers of wood, even when cleaned with acid? Is this a paranormal event? Do the spirits of dead patients still remain at the asylum? Is the Athens Lunatic Asylum haunted? That is for you to decide.
1: And we do have in our show notes the link to where you can get a hold of the asylum walking tour if you're in the Athens area and would like to do that. And our next episode is going to feature, Denise, you know, with some of these places, like, for example, the asylum here, we have a hard time finding hauntings in regards to them. Well, this location is not going to be a problem finding hauntings. This place is thought to be the most haunted location in America. Yes, I know. We've said that many times
0: before. We're going to the Haunted Mansion? No. Oh.
1: <laughs> so I guess this would be the second most haunted place. <laughs> you know, they all like to claim this. It depends upon what survey you're looking at. I believe it's the Travel Channel that claimed that this was the most haunted location in America. It for sure is the most haunted location in San Diego. Ooh, This one was requested by a couple of our listeners, Candace Nelson and Michelle DePriest. And that is The Whaley House. So looking forward to bringing that to everybody on our next episode. And we do have some iTunes reviews to share with everybody. We have our final bad one. It's a two-star. Good idea. Poor execution. K8 WMA. Topics are interesting, but the production is terrible. The hosts read off scripts. Compared to other similar podcasts, this is disappointing. Also, episodes take forever to start because of chit-chat. Denise, (laughs) when I read this, uh, the first time I laughed out loud because the hosts read off scripts. Really? You don't say! I gosh, there's. Uh, we must be the only podcast out there that does that. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a podcast that doesn't
0: have scripts. They are grateful that I have the script. That's all I've got to say.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And the whole thing is, it's not like we just sit there and stick straight to the script. We don't add anything. We don't say anything else. Partly what this does is, first of all, if we had to memorize all the information on each of these places to bring to you guys, we'd do one or two episodes a month, maybe. Also... It makes it really nice to have a script already done because then we don't have to pay somebody to transcribe it for those of our listeners who either would like to have the information to use later, maybe for some of their own research, or for those people out there who want to enjoy our show that are listening impaired, they can look at our quote unquote script so that they can see that. So I prefer show notes. That's what you call it exactly so and that's why I call them show notes rather than scripts because we don't stick straight to it and we add in our own stuff and I just thought that was hilarious because I'm like well maybe an interview show but even then I think most interviewees have a list of questions already in front of them they might throw something in off the cuff but you know I don't know any show that doesn't make heavy use of notes or scripting the next review five stars this podcast is great ebus0626 I love paranormal but not horror this podcast is great for keeping my interest without creeping me out. I work alone at night in an office. The hosts are great and informative. Love the Folly Beach episode since I'm from South Carolina. Future shows should be the Haunted Hunter store in Pendleton, South Carolina. Love the show.
0: So we've added that
1: to our list of locations.
0: Yes, and I would encourage you to keep your ears open because we're doing a couple ghost tours in September in South Carolina.
1: Five stars from Seder Fanatic. Love this and them. I love Diana Denise and I love their stories. I never seriously considered the paranormal to be anything but make-believe, but they're making me believe. (laughs) Love that. We have Cecil Marie, five stars, love it, love the show. Diane and Denise are so down to earth, I could totally see myself hanging out with them and talking haunted history.
0: Well, we would love to do that sometime. Absolutely, because we love hanging out with our listeners.
1: And then one of our reviews over in the UK, we got an update on it. This was from SKMP. And the original review said our audio quality was appalling. Creative idea. Like the host. Informative listen. Hope the audio quality improves. So they updated it and said sound quality vastly improved from how they started off. If you're not listening because of audio quality, you're missing out on quality content. Give it a little bit or skip forward about 10 to 15 episodes. Hosts are awesome and they cover some pretty cool places. Some are well known, but even better. Others, not so much. Nice to learn about some spots that you may not know anything about. Highly recommended. Thanks for the podcast, ladies. P.S. My mother's lived on Folly Beach from the most recent episode for years and she's never seen a ghost there and neither have I. I live in England now. So much history here and so many ghosts. Y'all need to come across the pond. Yeah, y'all's definitely not from across the pond. (laughs) Could point you to some great locations in and around London. Well, we definitely look forward. I would love to visit London for sure. All right. We want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Tanner Campbell. Thanks.
0: Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes On. Listen, the M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.